This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Last December, 195 countries came together in Paris to strike a landmark climate change agreement. The deal's ambitious targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions are adding to the global push for a low-carbon economy that is less dependent on fossil fuels. To discuss the technologies making this possible and the implications for existing industries, I'm joined today by Yako Kuroshi of Goldman Sachs Research. Yako, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yako, to kick it off, where are we in the transition to the low-carbon economy? If you go back to the 1990s, when a lot of the development started around us, we really didn't have any low-carbon technologies. There's a big debate about what to do about climate change, but not a lot of technological solutions. Absolutely. We didn't have low-carbon sources for power generation other than hydro and nuclear at the time. We were far away from alternative sources in lighting. We didn't have the prospects even of alternative vehicle technology. We think we're now at an inflection point. And the reason for that is that we think that low-carbon technologies are now taking off the training wheels. So there are select technologies out there, not all of them, but some of them, that are now rapidly gaining scale and taking market share in things like lighting, power generation, autos. And we think that is changing the way that power is generated, the way it's stored, the way it's consumed. And that taken together, that's what we describe as the low carbon economy. So with your GS Sustain team at Goldman Sachs Research, you've outlined a thesis of four pillar technologies that underpin the low carbon economy. Walk us through the pillars and why you see them as not only good for the environment, but increasingly viable economic investments. Yeah, so if you talk about low carbon technologies, there's a very long list out there. But we think actually only very few of them matter because they combine scale and rapid growth. So if you think about technologies like nuclear or biofuels, these are big markets today, but they're actually growing relatively slowly. So nuclear as a technology has lost market share in global electricity generation since the 1990s. And then there's a whole range of other technologies, like, for example, fuel cell vehicles, carbon capture and storage, concentrated solar power that are simply too small to matter on a five to ten year Scale. And not showing enough growth really to matter. Some of these technologies are growing relatively fast, but if you think about something like fuel cell vehicles, the market leader expects for the first vehicle that is now available 30,000 in sales by 2020. So in an 80 million car market, that is too small to matter. So talk about the four that do matter. It's a short list of usual suspects. First and foremost, that's LEDs, solar PV, onshore wind, not the offshore stuff, and increasingly hybrid and electric vehicles. And what we see here is markets that are now, in terms of revenue today already, in the hundreds of billions of US dollars, and that are growing relatively quickly. How might the changes that we're seeing in these different industries affect the competitive dynamic within those industries? And what are we seeing already today? We think the best way to think about these technologies is, quote-unquote, good old-fashioned tech disruption. So what is happening is that these new technologies are eroding the competitive advantages of the incumbents. The barriers to entry are coming down, 
and we see a number of new entrants pushing into these markets and that leads to a fragmentation of those markets and increasing competitive pressures and margin compression. So that makes it very difficult for the incumbents, but it's also a very difficult environment for many of these new entrants. As I hear you describe the competitive dynamics, it's not as simple as bet on the new entrants and bet against the incumbents. How do you think this could play out over time in some of these industries? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right there. So if you think back maybe 10 years when these technologies were starting to take off, we were very excited about, say, solar companies. Solar has exceeded all expectations as a technology. But if you look at solar companies from an investor standpoint, they have often struggled to create sustainable returns. And I think we had a very interesting example of that this year. The two biggest corporate bankruptcies in the U.S. year to date are a coal company and a solar company. And they both went bust 10 days apart. And we see similar dynamics happening in the lighting industry. And it's interesting to think about how the transition to hybrid and electric vehicles is eroding the competitive advantages of the incumbents, as their expertise in the fossil fuel engine is no longer as valuable as before. The long-term promise of a lot of these technologies is that we'll reduce emissions and we won't lose economic growth. What will be the emissions impact of these technologies, and when do you think the impact will really kick in? So in our research, we have tried to understand the impact of these technologies on global emission pathways. And our key takeaway from this is that the impact on emissions might be bigger and come earlier than a lot of people anticipate. So we think that these four technologies will help global carbon emissions peak perhaps already as early as 2020 rather than towards 2030 as it is in mainstream projections. So to give you an example, we think that these four technologies, so LEDs, onshore wind, solar PV, and hybrid and electric vehicles, are already today saving over one gigaton of emissions per year. And we see that increasing to five gigatons by 2025. Just to put that into context, if we're thinking about energy-related global emissions, that's over 33 gigatons. So we're actually talking about quite sizable amounts of emissions that have been saved through these technologies. What are people missing in their projections? Just the rapidity with which these technologies can take hold? Yeah, I think we're now at a point where wind and solar, for example, are adding 100 gigawatts of power generation capacity per year to electricity supply. That is much more than we could have imagined just two, three years ago. And I think the analogy to shale is interesting. When the shale revolution was gaining pace. Very few people saw that coming. Right? 2011, exactly. People were dismissing this as a flash in the pan. The economics were thought to be marginal. And two, three years later, the oil price half. We could see similar types of developments from these technologies. So probably the most advanced pillar, and you mentioned this, is lighting. It's projected by 2020, six and 10 light bulbs will be LEDs. What learnings can we take away from how the lighting industry evolved over the last couple of years? I find the lighting sector a fascinating case. So if you think about LEDs, they had 1% market share in 2010. 1%, 1%, six years ago. Exactly. And we're now in a situation in the US where more than half of lighting sales are already LEDs. And we think globally, we might go towards 6 and 10, 7 and 10 by 2020. That is probably one of the fastest technology shifts in human history. Now, how did we get there? Part of it was regulation. So you had bans on incandescent light bulbs 
in the US, in Europe, in China. Part of it was the very rapid technology development. The cost reductions were similar to the semiconductor industries and the quality of the LEDs improved rapidly so that today an LED in lighting quality is comparable to an incandescent light bulb. We then came into a situation where from a consumer standpoint, an LED is not much more expensive. The lighting quality is similar and the lifetime is perhaps 10 years compared to an incandescent light bulb that is one and a half years. So in the LED sector, what enabled this rapid shift is that the lifespans are relatively short. So you get a huge turnover. Rapid turnover. Exactly. Right. And the system switching costs are negligible. So you can just unscrew the existing light bulb and replace it with an LED. If you think it's a about- It's harder to change your power source. Exactly. The transition in the power generation sector has been going on for a much longer time, but will probably still need several decades to complete because we're talking several billions of investments for a bigger power plant. We think about lifespans of 20 to 40 years rather than 12 to 18 months. But is it possible that we'll see power plants that were built on fossil fuels today or in the last five years be obsolete sooner than we would have guessed? There are cases in Europe where brand new gas-fired power stations are basically mothballed already. And the reason for that is that solar and wind power that is on the grid in countries like Germany makes it very difficult for gas-fired power stations to compete. Their business model is based around the idea that they basically switch on during peak demand. And with a lot of wind and solar on the grid, the economics for some of these gas power plants don't work out anymore. One of the things you've written a lot about is the battery and how it could serve as a strategic linchpin of the low-carbon economy. Explain what you mean by that. In order to get into the next phase of this transition, which is the autos industry, you will need a battery that is good enough and cheap enough for a mainstream car. If you get that battery, that will also revolutionize the economics of wind and solar. So the big question mark in the industry today is, how fast will battery technology improve? How cheap will it become? And what will be the chemistries that ultimately allow that battery to work? When do you see that tipping point coming or is it impossible to forecast at this point? Well, we're now in a situation where over the last five years we've had rapid improvements in battery technology. Until 2020, those will continue. Why is that? We have quite good visibility on that because we're taking chemistries that we understand very well and we're basically scaling them. And so if you look at something like the Gigafactory that's being built in Nevada or a similar type of battery plants that are being built in China, what these do is take technologies that we know and produce them at scale and we know what that does to costs. Easy uh, to model. Yep. Drop rapidly. Post-2020, there's much bigger question marks because we don't know what the potential is to further optimize the existing chemistries. And if we are forced, perhaps post-2020, to switch to other chemistries, it's very difficult to say what the cost will be or which chemistries those will be. So as you think about the battery being the strategic linchpin, electric vehicles are really critical. People have been talking about electric vehicles for years, but deployment's been so far very minimal. In fact, pure electric vehicles are still just 1% of global car sales or less than 1%. What has to happen for electric vehicles to become a bigger factor in the automotive space? If you look at electric vehicles, 
we're now in a situation where the auto industry needs to look to alternative drivetrain technologies. And if we go back two years, it was still a big question mark what those alternative drivetrains might look like. So we were debating fuel cell vehicles, various forms of hybrids, electric vehicles. The jury is in many ways still out, but the rapid advances in battery technology make it more likely that the electric vehicle might be the winner there. Now, if you think about how that transition works, we expect that to be similar to the LED case or to the case in power generation. So you need the continued rapid cost reductions and performance improvements. Which should come if there's enough investment. So we think. But we also need the regulatory support. We have that with the emission limits, but we also see governments thinking about new ways of incentivizing this transition. And ultimately, what we need is consumer acceptance. The jury is still out on that, but the likelihood that we get to a disruptive change trajectory in the autos industry with electric vehicles has certainly increased over the last year. So let's take a step back and look at the global picture. China has gained a lot of attention recently because pollution, environmental damage from its rapid growth is increasingly apparent and really been noticed by the citizens there. On the other hand, they're also the world's largest investor in renewable energy. How could China drive the transition to a low-carbon economy? Well, China is among the many countries that are very seriously thinking about how to change the way that they use energy and consume energy. China is today the biggest market for low-carbon technologies. It's the biggest market for wind and solar. It's also among the biggest markets for LEDs. And it's also, and this is something that a lot of people don't know, the biggest market for electric vehicles. Almost half of electric vehicles last year fully electric vehicles were sold in China. What we see happening now in China is that actually the energy landscape is changing. Coal is losing market share in electricity generation. And we believe that coal demand and also coal production in China for the first time in decades might decline. So it is certainly one of the markets where the future for these technologies is created, where there's a lot of interesting business models and where we also see a lot of interesting regulatory support. So, for example, in Beijing, there's limits on license plates, the availability of license plates. Of the 150,000 license plates that they give out per year, they now are reserving 60,000 for what they call new energy vehicles. And that is... Uh, That's a powerful incentive. Hybrid yeah. and electric vehicles, yeah. exactly. India has also been very vocal in this debate, and they led a group of developing countries at Paris in terms of vocalizing concern over the trade-offs between the low-carbon economy and economic development. How do you see that debate playing out over the next several years in places like India that worry that rapid adoption of low-carbon technology could actually be an impediment to their growth? Well, I think what you see in India is a government that is pursuing an all-of-the-above strategy. So they're investing very heavily in solar. They're also investing heavily in fossil fuels. But the economics will play a key factor here. So we're now in a situation where wind and solar are among the cheapest forms of adding new electricity generation capacity in some places. Over the next five to 10 years, we'll probably go to a situation where they are the cheapest sources in most places. And that includes places like India. So if you look at what the energy minister is saying there, they believe that the economics of solar in particular are becoming increasingly attractive if you compare it, for example, to coal. 
And so they have very ambitious targets. And that's even without pricing in the externalities around the costs of coal. Absolutely. In the end, this is a commercial decision. Companies have to make the economics work for them. And we see a big push in investment in renewables in India. We will have to see how this transition works out. But what makes India interesting from our perspective, that this could be the first economy that sees large-scale industrialization based on low-carbon technologies. So a big part of India doesn't have a grid today. The ownership of cars is still very low. So without major investment in some of these sectors already, India has the potential to move directly to a more distributed electric grid. Yeah, distributed power generation could play a big role in providing energy for a lot of people that are today lacking energy access. And then of the sunk costs of an existing system. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously big uncertainties associated with it, but the potential is there. And I think that the Indian government is very focused on making this a reality. Yako, to close it out, how will the technologies we discussed evolved over the next decade or so, particularly when you think about other emerging technologies? If you look at low-carbon technologies, they are not happening in isolation. And a lot of the other trends that we're talking about in Goldman Sachs research, like, for example, drones, the blockchain, autonomous vehicles, they interact with these technologies. Drones are, for example, being used to survey wind turbines. The blockchain, maybe in the future, not today, but maybe in the future, might be used to trade energy in a decentralized net. And the future electric vehicles may very well be autonomous vehicles at the same time. So it is very difficult to say today how the interactions between these different trends will work out. But what we could see is that these different trends reinforce each other. And accelerate the transition even more beyond what you've projected today. Absolutely. All right, Yako, thank you very much. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on July 11th, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.